So we just read out of this passage in James chapter 1, and what's interesting about that, that that passage deals with so many things that we've already discussed. Um, the, two, three weeks ago, I, I was talking to you about the fact that we're going to be doing the Shema at Camp Cope, and last year we actually did the Shema. It's right here in this text, but it's not worded that way, right? It's not worded with heroes, you're the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you love God with all your heart, soul, and, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not found here explicitly, but that's exactly the tenor of what's being said in the text. And remember, Shema was to, to not only listen where you can hear words and understand it, but to go out and do it. And if you're not doing it, then you're not listening. In this case here, the, the writer, James, is basically saying, you know, don't be a forgetful hearer. Be a doer. Well, that is a lot with what we're talking about when we're dealing with the word religion. So I was doing some research, looking at Pew studies and, and what have you with regard to this word, and there's actually, to my surprise, a trend where the word is now becoming a little bit more positive overall. And, and I found that interesting because everything that I hear in public and what I hear among young people professing to be believers is a very negative connotation when it comes to the word religion. In fact, when you look at this word, the, the perception is that when you hear the word religion, it's like this rules-based type of a place that you go to. It's organized religion. It's tied to fanatical teachings and fanatical behavior. So I think this illustration is the idea of, of the concept of religion. At least that's the perception I have gotten when I hear other people use this word. Not a very positive term from that vantage point, right? And when you go further and, and read through this negative connotation, this is what is really prevalent, especially among the young all the way up to about 50 years old. Pew studies, I mean, from as early as 2016. And you've got this concept. Remember, um, there's a new category that really has jumped out in the last, one, last generation. It's the religion of non. You might, you might hear that if you don't already hear it, right? They don't have any affiliation. They're not atheist, but they're not religious. And so they're the religion of non. And it's, I mean, I think from ages 30 to 49, it's as, as high as almost 40%. In, within this demographic category. It's just staggering numbers to have that kind of uh, amount of people who are beginning to associate themselves with this. And so some will say something along those lines. Jesus is my savior, but not my religion. And so now I'm wondering, how do we define terms? How do we understand these words? Because again, from, from what I've heard as a child of God, when, when I hear people who are churchgoers and non-churchgoers, they use the word religion in a manner that I see personally inconsistent with Scripture. And thus, even our young, because we don't deal with terms and understanding standards, if you will, of words, we get this concept, and the word evolves then over time. And so this is the, the oh, it doesn't even come out on the screen here. Spiritual but not religious is the in red. Okay? So it's people that are turned off with organized religion. And I use the word in quotes. 
right? So the, what people in the world think when they think of organized religion is this right here. This setting. Coming to a church building, going through church rules of worship. That's the concept of religion. And then to extrapolate a little bit beyond that, it's this picture that what we get indoctrinated with here, we go out and we slam everyone else that's not us. That's organized religion. And to a certain degree, there's truth. Because there's some that, that have this picture. And so I had, there was another illustration I wanted to give, but in our politically correct society, I decided not to give this photo. It would not have been politically correct. But it's a picture of all these different religions pointing at each other with weapons and how they deal with, quote-unquote, religion. And so you're having individuals like Stephen Hawkins and, and many others. In fact, I was uh, fascinated by a story of a Japanese man who's 82 years old who was living on a deserted island for the, almost 30 years. Yes, yes, some of us had had the conversation, so you're laughing. But, but here's a man who... He wanted to get away from society, and, and so in this interview, um, because now he's been brought back to mainland Japan, um, basically he was asked, you know, what do you think is the harm of society? And he said, religion. That's what harms society. And many individuals believe the same of that. That's why they love Jesus but hate religion. So there's this concept. Well, what I want us to do is to rethink the word from a biblical vantage point. I want us to see what the scriptures actually say. And if you do, I believe you will find a very beautiful word that's getting a bad rap, right? And just like how we can misuse terms and phrases in scriptures, as we've looked at even from as early as last week, we can see how it can be misused and kind of turned upside down, if you will, with this word religion. So I want us to, to note that this word, if we're going to look at this word and understand it as disciples of Jesus, the word religion is basically a set of beliefs that manifest itself, right? Because we believe this, we behave this way, consistent with this belief, and so on and so forth. And so what that looks like, hopefully, is that we look like Jesus, we talk like Jesus, we act like Jesus, that's what it should look like if we're disciples of Jesus. Now, notice my word choice, very specific. Because what happens with denominationalism is we start looking like and acting like and behaving like a sect. That's how we get the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the freedmen, men of the synagogue, all the different sects of Judaism, and the same with, with regard to Christianity. And since you start off with the Lord's Church, we get with the Catholic Church. And then within Protestantism, you've got all the different branches that um, segment off instead of this big umbrella of following Jesus. And even among brethren, um, brothers and sisters in Christ, in churches of Christ, we have sub-sects, Right? We conveniently label us from our vantage point. And so we got liberal brethren, institutional brethren, or we got the one cup brethren, right? Or from their vantage point, we got the legalistic brethren. 
right? We got the non-instrumental brethren. That's how they would sect or segment. And so what I'm saying is when we're looking at this word, it goes from a positive word we find in Scripture to something that has branched off and become so nuanced that it takes on a very negative connotation. So here's what Jesus uh, is spoken of by the Apostle Paul. And this is what he wants for us who follow Jesus. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what Paul says of our heavenly father, of those who would follow Jesus. And if that's the case, then, then our religion is this. That we look like him because we're conformed into his image. We talk like him because we're conformed into his image. And we act like him. Right? So that's what this word is dealing with from a New Testament vantage point. All right? Now, mind you, the word has different contexts. And we're going to see that different contexts. But this is the primary message of the word in the New Testament. So let's read some of these passages. I want you to open up to the book of Acts. And we're going to read Acts chapter 26. In fact... I think it's in Acts chapter 25 in some of your translations that you'll have the word either religion or superstition, right? So where, where Paul and Apollos had gone to, there are people that had a superstitious view. Well, that's the word religion in some of your translations. But for the purposes of looking at the word, um, I think it's threskeia is the word that we're talking about that deals with the translation of the word religion, this set of beliefs that is manifested. That's the word that we're actually focused on, all right? And so here in Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul is, is referring back to his life before he started following Jesus, right? So notice what he says here in, I will pick up in verse four. Paul is saying to Agrippa, that my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion. I live the Pharisee. So what he's saying is, our religion is Judaism. Within Judaism, the religion of Judaism... I was within a segment of that sect called Pharisees. And within that sect of Pharisees, I was among the strictest within that sect, within this religion. And so that's basically what he's categorizing. He said, if you think you were conservative, we've had that conversation, right? Not as conservative as me. That's the way the Apostle Paul is delineating himself from the other Pharisees among the rest of all the Jews. That's what he says. So it was the strictest sect of our religion. And notice every time I highlight it, right, this is the belief system highlighted, underlined. I'm sorry. Underline is the belief system. In yellow or orange, whatever this color is, mustard, is the practice. So belief system and here's the manifestation of that belief system highlighted. So belief system, strictest sect of our religion, Judaism, I lived a Pharisee. Okay. Then we go on to another passage, and we see how this passage is used. So in Colossians, that word religion comes up again in another 
context. So Colossians chapter 2, I want you to read, go, go over there and read this passage with me. All right. So in this particular case, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's basically saying, you got those that are all rules-based from a legalistic standpoint. And, and rules are not wrong, he's saying, but these rules are not based upon true religion. They're based upon false religion. Okay? There's a difference. There's a set of beliefs that is within the scriptures of what we call Christianity today. And then there is a belief system that has the statement of Christianity, but it's really man-made. That's what he's saying. And so he goes on delineating this type of religion. And he says, uh, let's see, verse 20. And then we're focusing in verse 21 through 23. He says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Okay? So you got this belief system, and within the belief system are going to be these rules or regulations. This is what gives religion a negative con context, if you will. So he's saying, why, if you've died with Christ from the principles or basic principles of the world, why are you subjecting yourselves to regulations? And notice these regulations. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. So whatever these rules or these regulations are, it included this concept of an ascetic lifestyle. Right? Asceticism is where you refrain from doing certain things. Kind of like with the Catholicism. Of, of centuries where, you know, if you become um, someone who's given yourself to the quote-unquote the church, you're not going to get married. And so there's this rule, whether it's written or unwritten, right? It would be an unwritten rule in Catholicism, but you would not be married if you're going to be a priest. You're going to devote your life. It's asceticism. So do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This, these are the rules, if you will. And he goes on to qualify these rules. He says, all of these rules concern things which per perish with the using and are according to the commandments and doctrine of men. He, he states this in question form. But basically what he's saying is, these man-made regulations do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all perish with the using. And these are according not to the commandments of God, but to the commandments of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Get that? One of the greatest reasons why you're seeing in these Pew studies why people who are quote-unquote, and I'm going to use this from a denominational vantage point because these things are not centered on just churches of Christ, but just those professing Christianity, why many are leaving the quote-unquote church is that concept, among others. In churches of Christ, among brethren that you and I have fellowship regularly with, right, what we believe to be sound and healthy teaching, what we believe to be biblically authorized, have nuances within that subsect. And the nuances may be along the lines of, okay, men, if you're going to be presiding at the Lord's Supper table, 
you got to have cut hair at least so high. And you can't have color in your hair. And you can't have earrings. And then go on. These are things that, and we give, and we have good, wise reasons for such, right? Because we love God, and we want everyone else that loves God to have this set of beliefs. And so we teach them to our children, and then our children teach this to their children. And, and all of a sudden, you've got generations that this is a practice. But what Paul is saying is there are some of these belief systems that we have made that are self-imposed religion. And he says in the text here, false humility. Now, notice in your Bibles, the word false will be italicized. But that's the implication of this type of humility. It's not true, genuine humility. It's false humility. In other words, this is not, God did not make up this law. But we've come along and we've added to the word of God a law, whether it's written or unwritten. And if you wanted to state it as, hey, guys, we want you guys to have cut hair. We want you to dress nicely. We want you to not have the ear, ear piercings and, and so on and so forth. In, well, not only in your ear anymore, just all over your body. Uh, you know, these are things that we recommend. But if you don't have that, we're not going to keep you from the table. I mean, what a huge difference there would be. But I've personally come to know over the years individuals who have left because of these things. So therein lies the disconnect between religion, the way it's used today, and the, and the way it's being used here in the scriptures. All right? And so, notice again, he says, here is the, um, the, the religion, the, the belief system, right? In this case, it's called self-imposed religion. And here is the practice of self-imposed religion. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. So again, religion is the belief system, and the manifestation of the religion is your practice of that said religion, right? Go on. In James chapter 1, this is the last two passages that uses the word religion in the New Testament. And so let's go on to that passage that was read for us by Mark just before the sermon began. So James chapter 1, we're going to read the text here and then the whole context, because Mark was reading the whole context for us, beginning in verse um, 22, if I'm not mistaken. So, here, James chapter 1. All right. In verse 25. Well, let me back up to verse 21, then, in fact, and just get the whole text. Therefore, he says to Christians, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. There's behavior, right? There's a behavior, and that behavior is not matching true religion, right? Looking like, talking like, and acting like Jesus. Right? So, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. There's your religion, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you just believe, it means nothing. That belief system has to have a way that shows itself to be true to the conviction of that belief. So he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's just like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. 
He observes himself, then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. It'd be like coming to a church service, hearing God's word, and saying amen. I mean, praise God, right? Put your hand, pump it up, everything, and then you leave and you go live just like a regenerate. As if you completely did not even hear the message that you amen, that you agreed to. It's called hypocrisy. It's called deceiving yourself. You can declare all you want. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, which does not make you such if you're not living it out. And that's exactly why James is saying you need to be a doer of the very word that you proclaim. It's like looking into that perfect law, but not continuing in it. He flips it around in verse 25. He says, in contrast to what he just said in verse 24, a man who forgets what kind of man he was after looking into that mirror, this man, verse 25, looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. He is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. And this one will be blessed in what he does, right? So you talk about all these um, rules and regulations, these beliefs. What are they? What is the teaching? What makes salvation possible for us? What makes walking with God consistent with what his word actually says to us? Is it things that we impose upon ourselves, self-imposed religion, Colossians Two, or is it what God has given to us? Because isn't that the mantra of who we are as faithful believers? That we be faith comes by hearing the word of God? Or is it faith comes by hearing the word of God plus whatever things we add to it? Because we may not say it that way, but it can come across that very way. It did in the first century, and it does again today. Just a matter of what we are able to see with our own eyes, by faith. So he goes on and says this. Verse 26, he illustrates this pure religion. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, if you think you have a belief system, but does not bridle his tongue, instead deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If you consider yourself religious, this is a positive term, not negative. If you consider yourself religious, but you're not bridling your tongue, you deceive your own heart. This one's religion is useless, he says. And then he flips it around again. Here's what pure and undefiled religion looks like to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Again, if we're going to try and look at things from a legalistic law codified manner, then we're physically going to say, okay, widows and orphans, right? What about widowers? What about the poor? That's not widows. In other words, this is an idiomatic expression of people in need. And the general population understood widows and orphans 
are people in need. That's who they represent. It's not limited to them specifically, categorically, but it represents a people in general. And so pure and undefiled religion is that you help people in need. Remember last week when we were looking at um, Matthew chapter 25, I was reading from verse 31 following. And when you see someone who is naked or hungry or thirsty or in prison, you don't pass by, you help them. That's the concept that is given here. In fact, in James chapter 2, he illustrates this very point. I want you to look because if you go and, and see this in action, you see this pure and undefiled religion at work. I'm going to go and do this first point. Uh, this is what makes pure religion alive. Look at James 2, and then we'll go to 1 John. Look at what he says. He, he sets the tone of pure and undefiled religion in chapter 1, verse 26 and 20, or 27, and then he illustrates it, right? Here's the one who is a forgetful hearer, useless religion, and a person who has pure and undefiled religion. And he illustrates it in chapter 2 where you have the forgetful hearer on one side because he is prejudiced and the one who has a religion that is alive. So in James chapter 2, he gives the illustration and then in verse 14, he says this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? If we have the mindset like that rich young ruler that tried to justify himself to Jesus after he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, love God, love your neighbor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who's my neighbor? See what happens? You start justifying yourself because you, you want to make sure you can do the least amount of possibility because I don't want to help that person in need. And then Jesus used the best possible illustration that would absolutely turn upside down the world of any Jew, and that is using those despised Samaritans to show who loved his neighbor. And what's happening here is a similar despising I don't want coming, and I'm going to modernize this. I don't want coming into this church, someone who is poor, who will only be a leech and not contribute to the work. Instead, there's going to be a, a hindrance to the church, financially speaking. But now, you got someone that can really bump up our weekly contributions. Hey, you're all welcome. That's basically a modernizing what's taking place in the early part of James chapter 2. He says here, as illustration, there's someone in need and you don't help them. That's useless religion. He goes on to say this. In verse 17, this type of faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's useless. But if Someone will say in verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's pure and undefiled religion. 
I will show you my faith. I will show you my religion by my works. And you'll get to see, is my works the works that belong to God? Or is my works the works of men that I pretend to have as the works of God? You'll get to see that too. Do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? There's a belief system that God tells me to go ahead and take my only begotten son, who God promised would be the heir, and go offer him. So my belief system is, God, you promised me that through Isaac, my seed would be established And the promises that all families of the earth would be blessed would take place through Isaac. And because my belief system is so consistent with what you've promised me, I offer my son to you. Because I know somehow, someway, because you are God, my son, whom you're telling me right now to sacrifice, you will make alive again. Because you promised. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you will. And that is the reason why... Abraham could say to Isaac, when the son says, where's the, where's the offering? Where's the lamb? And he says, God will provide. See, that's true religion. In all the various contexts and how it's played out, that's true religion. It's consistent with your belief system. It plays out in your walk. In this case, he uses something like that for a completely different context. And the context is you see someone who is in need and you say, be warm and filled, but you do nothing about it. Or you see someone in need and you have the means to do it and you do. Brethren, why do you suppose, why do you suppose we have this coat drive? It's not so that we look good in our community. That may be a blessing. It's not so that we get to look like some other churches, by all means. That's not why we do it. We do it because we love our neighbors. We do it because there are people in our community that are in need. And as individuals within the body of Christ, if we come together collectively or we do it as as individuals, we're still doing it, right? As individuals who loves our neighbors. It's consistent with the belief system that we have been taught And last week, if you remember correctly, I used the expression very explicitly of all the things that Jesus could have said when saying, you know, on the day of judgment, here's what it's about. And it was not about the order of the Lord's Supper. It was not about this or that. It was not all these things. He was talking about what we do to show love to God and love to neighbor. That's what he did. That's what he chose explicitly. And here in James chapter 2, he could have done the same thing. When talking about pure and undefiled religion. Is that we sing this psalm this way. He didn't say that. He refers back to the Shema. That you love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and 5. That's what he does. And every Jew that read this letter understood exactly what he was referring to. When he says about faith that is alive versus faith that is dead. No different than the Israelites under the old law. They understood exactly what was meant. And James is making it abundantly clear 
You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. If you want to express it in another way, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by his religion in beliefs only. All right? So if we're talking about this concept, it reminds me, and this is the reason why the sermon came today. On Tuesday night, Mr. Hunter was the one that was giving us the orientation. And he asked at the very beginning of the orientation, why do we come together? There was like, like 32 people that came here to have, go through orientation. And he says, why do you have Bible studies? It's a great question. Our answer, I'm going to speak generally speaking, because I don't know what every individual would answer, but our answer generally is, because we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are incarcerated that they may put on Christ. We're trying to share the gospel. And his follow-up is, well, then what? Now they're children of God. Now what? Because at some point, some of these men and women that we share the gospel with leave the facility they leave the prison or they leave the jail, then what? And brethren, why I'm so adamant, why I'm so passionate about our incarcerated brethren is because I know, because we've experienced this already with some of our new brethren, is they leave the facility and they have nothing. They have no family to go to because they many of them are disowned they literally have nothing but the clothes on their back and depending on what time of year it is those clothes do not match up with when they leave they may go in summer and come out in the middle of winter what do they have this is your brother or your sister in christ we're talking about let alone any person including your enemy what happens you see Religion is comfortable right here in this room. It's comfortable when all we need to do is sing songs, put some money in a plate, have some prayers, maybe even have a Bible study that, oh, my word, we have to pray and study about and then come. That's all it is. And for some Christians, brethren, I'm getting a little hot right now. For some Christians, that's all it is about Christianity. And shame on us. Shame on us if that's what we think religion is. Amen. Pure and undefiled religion. You help people in need. Some wonder why I harp on this message over and over and over. You read the New Testament and tell me what is it that's harped on over and over and over. When you look at the whole counsel of God's word, what is spoken of every single time? And I'm just preaching what's right there. It's not redundant. It is fundamental, vitally fundamental to our faith. Vitally. It's not just a set of beliefs. It always follows up by actions. 1 John chapter 3, and we'll... We'll finish with this. This phase two is what happens when people put on Christ, right? Phase two is what happens when, when they have this new found belief system. And the belief system is, Jesus, I follow you. I have put to death my will. 
right? That's what that picture of baptism is, right? You are dying to the old man of sin and rising to walk in newness of life. What does that newness of life look like? And that's why Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it's a transformation of the mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Right? That's what he says. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, you have these words by the apostle John with what true religion looks like. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Jesus believed and acted out on that belief. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. I mean, this is over and over throughout the New Testament. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth and undefiled religion it's alive it works it's what faith does when faith manifests itself right it's not just words I do not want this church to ever be a church of just a belief system and the things that we do, I want it to be shining examples of what is actually and explicitly throughout all the New Testament taught. Because that's what transforms us into true believers of pure and undefiled religion. It's what's there. I'm not teaching anything that's not already there. It's just that it's not been emphasized enough among brethren that we have fellowship with on a consistent basis. I hear it all the time among brethren when we talk about conservative and liberal churches, right? Here's, for some of you that don't know these terms, and I don't care if you know them or not personally, but here's the terms. You got those in conservative churches, and they're known for not doing. And those in the liberal churches doing well beyond what God has authorized. That's the typical debate. And you have some that leave the conservative church, go to the liberal church, because they're not doing and they see God's word as doing and you got some that leave the liberal church going to the conservative church because what they're doing is not authorized then they come here and they're like okay now what are we doing that's what I see happening in a modern scenario that's a reality good bad and evil that's the reality but if we just go straight to God's word in its simplicity, simple teaching, it's not difficult to understand these words that have been quoted from scripture all throughout these passages, right? Whether it's in Colossians, whether it's in Acts, or here in, in James 1. Very clear. And then the teaching is not just explicit on the word, but on the concept of pure and undefiled religion all throughout the New Testament, fundamental to Christianity, is this life of what is the, man, the outward manifestation of our faith, that phase two that Mr. Hunter was talking about.
not every one of us need to be going into the jails or prisons. You know, we're a whole body. We're not all going to be the eye. What we used to do a few years ago, before all the world was turned upside down in our ministry of going into the jails, a number of the men and women of this congregation, particularly Kenny, did a great job of putting out a list of the men and women that we have been studying with on a week-to-week basis, and that list would update itself over time. But a lot of the men and women in this congregation would actually take that list and go right to the people. When I say people, some of them are not our brethren. Some of them became brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraged them. These are things that are absolutely so small to us, maybe, maybe, but are huge to the people that we're reaching. Huge. The coats that Ben asked you for, the ones that you're discarding, that mean nothing to you that you would give them away, huge to someone who does not have any. Huge. But if you can look at it as a blessing or as mark has done bought brand new coats beautiful coats to give people that are our neighbors that live in our community a piece of our love and whether it's coats whether it's a ride whether it's some food whether it's anything of need that we have the means to show love that we do it's who we are in Christ Jesus, spiritually speaking and, if needed, physically speaking. Those are the things that are explicitly taught with regard to pure and undefiled religion, explicitly. And I hate for us to actually take what is actually explicit and minimize it for something that is not even explicit and maximize it or that. So, pure and undefiled religion Is that how you live your life? Because that's what God's word says. If you're not living pure and and undefiled religion, it's a false religion. It is a self-imposed religion. And it's one by which you need to be careful with. If you want to have the judgment of God and his grace, turn. Practice what is explicitly taught in scripture. And you will do well.